Hello and welcome back to Pictorial on Relay FM. I'm Quinn Rose and I didn't go to art school, but I still love to learn about art and art theft. Hi, and I'm Betty. I also didn't go to art school, but I also love learning about art and uh, also sometimes about crazy dramatic things that happen in the art world, which is what we're going to talk about today. For today's episode... As regular listeners know, we usually do a little thing where we take turns researching a topic and sharing it with the other person. This time, we both watched the four-part Netflix documentary series, This is a Robbery, which is all about one of the most famous uh, and notorious art thefts in history, which is the robbery of the Isabella Gardner Museum in Boston on March 18th of 1990. So... The whole conversation we're about to have will have copious spoilers for the documentary. And by that, I mean it has copious spoilers for real life. (laughs) Uh, But I'll spoil the ending right now. They don't know where the art is and they don't know who took it. So there's not much to spoil past that. (laughs) I'm never really sure when it comes to like real world spoilers. I'm like, is it considered a spoiler to tell people like how World War II ended? Because, you know, it's history. (laughs) I think if someone doesn't know that the boat sinks at the end of the movie Titanic, then maybe they have other problems in their life, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Now, mind you, like, you know, obviously this is a, uh, I mean, for the art world, it is definitely probably one of the most famous news uh, events, but obviously it's not like something that everyone would know, but I do know that. I did recommend my dad to watch this documentary because I really liked it and he likes watching documentaries a lot too. And he did not like it because he didn't know that the art wasn't found. And I guess to him, it's kind of anticlimactic because, you know, he's not familiar with the story and he was like, oh, I want to know what happens to these. And he's like, it doesn't explain it. I'm like, well, that's because we don't know. And he's like, that's that's terrible i'm like that's real life (laughs) i honestly didn't really know anything about this before i watched the documentary and they're they do i think an admirable job of unfolding the story in an interesting way considering that it doesn't have a conclusion because you want it to the the last episode to them to be finding the art (laughs) establishing exactly who took it none of that stuff happens because they literally just still don't know um and so I think I just knew like from this documentary, I was like, this is a documentary that does not have a, a climax like that because I know that they don't find the art. And so like, <laughs> what does it actually talk about in here? But I like the first episode starts with the first episode is basically about the theft. And I'm going to say right now, I thought the first episode was pretty boring. <laughs> I don't know. What did you think of just the first episode? Yeah, I would say definitely it, it gets better. Uh, In subsequent episodes, the first episode was probably the least interesting, but I guess you kind of need to establish a bit of a background or maybe because they did spend quite a bit establishing just the history of the Isabella Gardner Museum and how it came to be and things that don't have to do with the robbery, but it kind of sets the scene of what kind of place it is. And I think that's There is some importance to that that is revealed later on, like why knowing about the history of it is is kind of relevant. Um, But yeah, I would say 
when you don't really know like where it's going, you might just be like, where is this going? <laughs> so. Yeah, I personally believe that this whole series probably could have been three slightly longer episodes instead of four episodes because I mean, the first episode is dedicated to the theft, but the theft itself, like this is not a story about like, how did they pull off this elaborate <laughs> art heist? Heist yeah. itself, incredibly simple. The story is trying to figure out who did it and why. Why is a big question. But I they wanted to spend so much time on the actual heist itself. And like you said, like they go into the history of the museum. And I think that th like it's great to have that background color. But especially when you don't know exactly where it's going yet, you're like, why are we spending so much time talking about how people like the Isabella Gardner Museum? <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> exactly. And I think for me, um, I actually did know quite a bit of background about this theft or and you know what happened surrounding the, this event uh, although this documentary did you know teach me a bunch of things i didn't know but yeah i've actually i've actually been to the isabella gardner museum at least like three times i think mm. <laughs> so um and the first time i went was probably like almost like 15 years ago when i was first in boston and but i do remember one of the times i was there i did take the theft tour like they have a they have oh. a tour that is just about the art theft so you can take that tour and they give they tell you what happened they show you all the frames that are empty and tell you what used to be there and then they tell you yeah we we still don't have it and if you <laughs> have any clues there you you can you can report what you know but basically we don't know where they are so yeah so i i think Knowing kind of in detail, really, like what what happened for me was, yeah, probably a bit more helpful because I kind of knew where where it was going or kind of had an idea. One thing I didn't realize, or I think one thing that I was maybe under a false impression before seeing this documentary was, I was under the impression that the museum when the robbery happened, really just didn't care about security and didn't think about it a lot and just was totally, you know, not thinking about it. And while it is true, their security, it was really bad. And this documentary really goes into how inadequate it was. They did actually show that a lot of people at the time were aware. They were like, we need to improve our security. This is really terrible. We need to do something about it. Like, I was under the impression that nobody even thought this was a thing that they should do. When, in fact, a lot of people did. It's just that they didn't do anything about it, which is somehow kind of worse. Because it's like, you knew this is a problem, but you just didn't yeah. do anything until, you know, everything went wrong. Real woulda, coulda, shoulda situation. <laughs> yeah. To, to run through the basics of the actual theft, I will say my primary takeaway from this entire documentary, it was pretty easy to do crime in 1990. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which there will be so many examples throughout this episode of just like, wow, it was sure was a lot easier to do crime back then. <laughs> but the, it really was very simple. Two guys dressed as Boston police officers, buzz on the door of the museum at like one in the morning. There's this guy named Richard Abbott, who was the security guard on duty. Uh, there were two guards on duty and he was one of them. He was at the desk. He's not supposed to let anyone in. He does let them in. He thinks that there are police officers. They start talking to him and then they say, 
hey, you look familiar. We think there's a warrant for your arrest. Like, get out from behind the desk. They handcuff him. And then apparently he says that they very dramatically say, this is a robbery, which I guess if you have that opportunity, you should take it to be <laughs> as dramatic as possible. For sure. But they, they handcuff and they duct tape um, Richard Abbott and the other guard on duty. They tape them like their heads as well and put them in the basement. Um, and then they spend a remarkable 81 minutes in this museum. They were not worried about anything. <laughs> they had no fear of God nor man. They're wandering around this museum. <laughs> They're actually not. They spend most of the time um, in one or two rooms and they take objects primarily from these two rooms. Uh, there is one painting that is stolen from another room that becomes a, a piece of interest later on, but we'll get to details of that in a moment. But basically, they get a bunch of paintings. They they care and uh, cut a lot of them out of their frames, uh, which was pretty horrible. Um, mostly paintings. They also take a, a Chinese vase, uh, which was the oldest object out of the museum that they took. And a few of them were quite... A valuable, uh, especially one that they talk about a lot, is Rembrandt's The Storm of the Sea of Galilee, which, as they say so many times in this documentary, is Rembrandt's only seascape. (laughs) (laughs) They really emphasize that one. Uh, Yeah. So they literally, they're in this museum for... 81 minutes. Um, they apparently they check on the guards a few times, making sure they're doing okay <laughs> down there in the basement. And then they wander on out. And literally no one ever catches them. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't until the next morning when the other shift guards showed up to relieve the night guards of duty that they realized something was wrong because no one was opening the doors. So by the time they even realized a crime happened, it was the next morning. It was like I don't know, like many hours after the incident. The only reason they even know a lot of things about this is because they were setting off proximity alarms everywhere in the museum, um, but they weren't worried about them because they were confident and somehow knew that this wasn't going to alert the police or anything. Um, And they'd already tied up the only two guards who were there. (laughs) And they took the paper record of the proximity alarms and like motion sensors, but there was a hard drive copy of that on the computer that they didn't take. And then they took the like VCR tape from the museum. So there's no, so they thought they took all the evidence of them, of any record of what they had done or looked like or anything. They did mostly, but there was this one hard drive record so they could track where they actually stepped in the museum, but without any video footage of it or anything. And of course, back then, you know, you don't have DNA testing and all the stuff that we have now. And so with that, once you get out of the building and there's no footage of you, it's like, well, we'll never catch these guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There was a lot of things in yeah, in this event that it was shocking, but it wasn't shocking. But it was just really interesting because, you know, I've watched a lot of CSI. <laughs> and, like, I, I just remember, like, after the first episode, going to the second episode, I'm like, okay, did they dust for fingerprints? Did they take samples? They didn't do any of that, <laughs> it seemed like. I, I know, like, at the time, yeah, DNA testing wasn't a thing. But it, it seemed, it really just seemed like... At the time, there was no protocol for what to do. Like, I think they said the Boston Police Department, what happened was they were touching everything and moving things around. So they really, they like disturbed the scene already. So I guess there wasn't really a point in 
test getting fingerprints like i don't know but it it just seemed like they didn't do anything that you would typically see in a csi episode yeah at one point they said that the only thing that they could have gotten real good fingerprints off of was the duct tape that the guards were duct taped with and then the duct tape disappeared out of evidence (laughs) and they never found it again and it's like the boston police are so incompetent it's (laughs) crazy i know i was like so and then the fbi seemed like they also at the time didn't really have anybody with expertise that had to do with like an art heist it seemed like they were also pretty incompetent (laughs) they were sending people in that were like they they investigated bank robberies or the mafia so they were accustomed to those types of crimes and it seems like stealing paintings Either the people who were investigating either didn't take it seriously or they were just like, I have no idea what to do. This is this is not something I'm typically used to working with. And yeah, so and and I would assume if the FBI had no clue about what to do at the scene of an art crime, I can just see the Boston Police Department going like looking at each other going, oh, <laughs> absolute clownery. <laughs> yeah. And that's basically the first episode is basically everything that we just said of just going through this actual uh, theft. The only other major thing that happens in the first episode is they introduce the best character in this whole documentary, Miles Connor. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Miles Connor before? I haven't. This is the first I've heard of him, but it seemed like I guess he was pretty well known. Yeah, I hadn't either, but he is apparently an incredibly successful art thief. They described him as a legendary criminal in Massachusetts, and they, they didn't tell this full story until later, but this story is so good. So he stole a ton of art over the years, and there was this one crucial thing that happened that a lot of their theories about this art heist actually hinge upon, which is he was caught for something. In order to reduce his sentence, like he's already caught by the FBI, okay? He's in trouble. He's facing jail time. He goes to the MFA, <laughs> steals a Rembrandt, like like gets chased down by guards and has to scare them away with a machine gun kind of level of stealing a Rembrandt off the wall <laughs> and uses the Rembrandt that he just stole to bargain it back for less jail time. What was happening in Boston in, in the 70s? They could just do anything. <laughs> it, it really seems just so bizarre because in movies like in you know oceans 11 those types of movies you have all these like sophisticated you know people going sneaking into whatever it is with all these like gadgets and they're so you know planned out whereas in real life i guess it's just a dude who walks into the mfa takes a rampart off the walls starts running shoots the machine gun at the feet of the guards chasing him and like runs off and some getaway driver's fan and it's just like it seems like more like something that would happen in some comedy skit I can't believe that story's real. But that actually ends up being a large part of this because the the next three episodes of the documentary are basically all going into the different theories about who did this and why they did it, but mostly following the primary theory that it was related to the Italian mafia in Boston and various people related to that. And one of the things that they think might have been a motivation for this Because a big part of it is you can't really sell the art very well after because it's so famous and it's so 
known everyone knows that it's stolen and so it's really hard to sell this kind of thing so either you're like an oligarch who just wants it for yourself or maybe you're a mobster who wants to use it as a bargaining chip if you get caught for any crimes as demonstrated by miles connor apparently literally works you can just bargain back famous art (laughs) in order to get reduced jail time for stuff that was actually one thing i wrote down i I literally wrote down is this really a good idea? <laughs> like when when it came to the part about criminals using pa- stolen paintings to barter for less jail time, because I'm like, it's almost like giving them incentive to commit a crime. In, in my opinion, it's like it's like, oh, you mean paintings can get us less jail time? Okay, well then let's go steal some art, which is also a crime. But <laughs> um, but it seems like. They continue to use this tactic, like whenever they interview or whenever they talk to Miles Connor or some of these other people that they suspected of being involved in this heist, they say things like, oh, if you give us information that leads to recovery of the painting, we'll shave off your jail time or maybe even you can walk free or like all kinds of things. And so in the end, they did talk about there is somebody who probably did get less of a sentence because of giving some sort of information i mean we still don't have the paintings but and i'm just like should we really let convicted um murderers walk the streets just for you know giving back a painting they stole it's very weird like i I would think that I was misunderstanding it, except for they talked about this concept so many times that I was like, no, they really mean, they really mean like using the paintings or sometimes even potentially information about the paintings for this, which like, as you were saying, seems like to really just incentivize art theft. Yeah, so I think that they definitely, they spent, they did spend quite a bit over the next few episodes looking at all the different possibilities of who who could have done it but i think one of the one of the problems is unfortunately so many people could have done it um mm-hmm. like they were like there's the irish mob there's the italian mob and then there's like multiple people and but one of the problems was also i think by the time they got somebody who actually was an expert on this issue in the FBI, it was already like 20 years later or something. And by this time, half of the people they think are having to do with this are dead. So it's like, okay. There's this little crew of a a little crew. (laughs) These are all hardened (laughs) criminals. But you know, there's this little crew of Italian mobsters that they talk about, um, they kind of establish at one point. And then as the story unfolds, they go through basically all of these people getting murdered mostly by mostly each other. Some of them died of natural causes, but a lot of them were killed uh, by someone or other. Oh, and I, I didn't mention this before, but in case you're going, why don't they think the famous art thief did it? Um, they do think he was potentially connected, uh, especially like he had connections to the mafia and they thought that maybe he helped out in some way or helped store the art in some way, but he was physically in prison at the time. And so he has a pretty rock solid alibi of not being the actual thief in this case. The end of the documentary, the only ending they really could have for this at all is out of all of the people they suspected being involved with this at the beginning, only one of them is still alive. And in 2019, he was released from prison and he's still not talking. If he does know anything, he's still not talking. And so the trail is just totally cold. But yeah, this is is David Turner, who's one of the 
central figures of the documentary. And the whole thing is his sentence for a different crime was mysteriously shortened right around the time that there was a big sting on someone else that they thought was involved in the painting. Oh, this part was embarrassing. <laughs> the FBI like throws a little press conference. <laughs> oh my God. Well, oh, this is even before that. No, the FBI basically announces internally and it, they basically tell everyone, well, we're going to find these paintings in this guy's house. And then they don't. <laughs> and then later on, they throw a little press conference to say, we actually know who took the paintings. And then the press goes, OK, who was it? And they go, well, we can't tell you because it's still an ongoing investigation. And like, well, if you know who did it, where are the paintings? And they go, we don't know. <laughs> so I don't even know why they did that at all. This documentary did not make the FBI seem competent at all um because that hard to make someone look competent under these circumstances <laughs> it's true but yeah th that part where they were doing a sting on someone's house thinking it might be in that house but i was just so yeah i felt like i was feeling secondhand embarrassment from just watching because what they did is before they even found anything they were just going to this house that they were told that it could be Things could be hidden there. But they like printed these big poster poster boards of the paintings saying something like recovered on them. And like <laughs> yeah. it's like they were they were getting ready to throw like a party, like, a celebration for, for something like for accomplishing whatever this is. And then they, they go into the house and they spent like, I don't know if it was like hours or day, days, like there were lots of like hidden compartments and rooms and stuff that could have hidden stuff but there was just nothing there and then of course they all had to be like oh okay I guess <laughs> I guess we're going home now and I'm just like oh my god like just to anybody don't do that because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's it's almost like you know you think you like got a job and you're celebrating and then you're told never mind we hired someone else like I just it, like that's like something that I feel like I can relate to. That's why I'm like, just don't celebrate too early. <laughs> no one ever told the FBI not to count their chickens before they hatched. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's not really worth going into a lot of details on this stuff. I will say, despite my uh, assertion of the first episode is kind of boring, I do think the next three episodes are pretty exciting in terms of tracking down what they do know and all of these different mafia guys there's also a really funny like five minutes that they spend on the irish mob and the potential connection to the ira there's like one guy in scotland yard who is convinced these paintings are in ireland and everyone else is like no they're not <laughs> <laughs> they even interviewed a guy from the ira and he was like uh this is so stupid <laughs> so well i mean of course he would say that but yeah you know. <laughs> true <laughs> but that's the thing is uh but there are just so many so many similar name sounding <laughs> Italian guys uh, involved in this and their different stories. But the, one of the primary things of this is that no one ever talked. There was one guy who claimed that he had the paintings, but they could never prove it and he couldn't produce real proof. And then no one else really ever claimed ever having the paintings except for little bits and pieces here and there which is so interesting because they thought like well they probably took them to get leverage but then people fully went to prison like people were dying and had no reason to lie anymore like all these things happened which you would think like this is the point in which they would confess and use this as a bargaining chip and then they didn't so it's like uh oh our theory's busted <laughs> it's yeah it is interesting although i do suspect that it might be 
because because I think I remember one of the one of the people who they thought probably could give them the most information was a guy named Bobby Donati and he was mm. one of Miles Connor's friends so they're like you know he's he's got this really good friend who's a famous art, you know art thief and you know he, there was all these connections but he was one of the people who was murdered in like 1991 and something like he was shot like and stabbed like 20 times and then they like cut his head off threw him in the back of a trunk and i'm like you know what like people probably saw how he died and was like yeah i don't think i want to go like that (laughs) yeah that's the thing they suspect bobby Nadi was maybe one of the people who was physically in the museum because a lot of these guys are like oh maybe they weren't there but they were involved and they're like maybe he was one of the people who was actually there and he got brutally murdered yeah so yeah i wouldn't talk after that either (laughs) but then there was that guy who was on his deathbed and he thought he was gonna die and his lawyer was like if you know anything about these paintings you can go home and die in comfort with your wife instead of dying in prison and he still was like i don't know anything man (laughs) so who knows that guy didn't die by the way which is such a funny (laughs) it's such a funny turnaround they're like this man is on the verge of death he's not making it through the night and then he wakes up and he's like i live he lives for like 24 years so much for the doctor who's like i am certain he is not gonna live through the night it's like well that doctor didn't know what he was talking about (laughs) but um i do yeah i do think there were certain parts of this documentary that was important like uh, to you know as as just like information to know because um the the director of the gardener uh during this time and and you know up until i think she was uh director until like 2016 she did say some things that i think were really important um and so her name's ann holly of course you know it was devastating because she was only working for six months when this happened yeah. i can just imagine I felt so bad for her yeah because she's obviously like i just started <laughs> and okay um and uh it did seem like she was hired on as someone who could hopefully like help turn around the museum because it did seem like the previous director really didn't care all that much and was one of the people they raised security concerns to and he didn't seem to he didn't do anything um so you know unfortunately uh the you know the new director she didn't have a chance to do anything either but one thing she did say that was i think really important is basically like she didn't say it in these words, but I'm paraphrasing her. But basically, stealing art is dumb. <laughs> so, and, the re- and the reason is, like, they're so fragile. Because it's one thing that they cut all these out of the frames. That's horrible. They probably, or I think at some point in the documentary, someone thinks they saw one. We weren't sure. We didn't know if that's real. But they saw that Rembrandt painting rolled up. And I remember like the interview with Anne Howley, she was just like, oh my God, that is like devastating because rolling a painting that old, you're pretty much destroying them. Like the paint's going to crack and flake off. And basically, yeah, like if any of these paintings that are in these institutions, you know, like the MFA or Gardner, they have to be constantly like in the right humidity level they have to like minimize light exposure you have to make sure your boxes are like acid free and and, like all these things that have to be maintained and also you got to store them flat so basically unless the people who stole it are like expert conservationists i don't like even if they found these paintings today i'm not sure what conditions they would be in because 
it's been, you know, more than 30 years. Um, but again, I, I like I'm hoping they the person who stole it or at least they found someone who is an expert in storing art because otherwise I don't even know if these works would have survived. Yeah, that's really sad. And something else that she says, one of the very first lines in the whole series is she says, they're only works of art because you're interacting with them. They can't exist without you. And in a, in a documentary that's mostly about crime <laughs> and not so much about the actual art, I thought that was such a beautiful way to really kick things off. Speaking philosophically about what art actually is. And, you know, you take it from the walls and you're in real danger of hurting it severely, possibly past the point of ever being able to be restored. You're taking it away from what it was designed to do and made for, which is to be seen and to invoke feelings in others. And you're just turning it into this manifestation of a bargaining chip or status symbol or whatever they were intended to be used for or maybe being used for today and really taking the soul out of them. Yeah, I definitely, so I do think parts of the first episode uh, that was important and relevant is, I think they they were really, so you know, I was not around before this theft, so I don't really know what people, like what, at what status the Gardner Museum was before this heist, but it did seem like they were saying, it wasn't really a place that a lot of people paid attention to. Most people in Boston probably didn't even know why it was important, but it was important because <laughs> um, not only was it a museum with all kinds of, you know, really priceless artworks by these really like renowned um, artists uh, over the years, um, it, the actual building is kind of a work of art in itself. Like Isabella Gardner, she built this kind of yeah kind of like a venetian palace is how they described it and it, it is like if you get a chance to go it really is a great um place to just tour the building because it's um yeah it's really beautiful there's this interior courtyard that's just like a luscious garden and it has like every single room has its own theme there's like a red room a yellow room a blue room and like a tapestry room like it's it's really nothing like some of these other museums, like the Museum of Fine Arts, which are, which are also really cool places. Uh, but this is more like, I guess it's more like a boutique like art place. Like it's it's really it's got character and it's really interesting. So what what is interesting is this heist. I think definitely did help to make this museum a lot more famous. Not to say that the people you know are are happy about it, but I I do think. I guess maybe a silver lining of this is that people are a lot more aware of the Isabella Gardner Museum, and it is definitely more famous now than it ever was, most likely. And it definitely seems like they're paying attention to their security now. Yeah. It's like every time we talk about something terrible happening to an art piece, it's, we're <laughs> yeah. just like, well, it made that art piece way more famous. But yeah, and I, I get the feeling that the entire point of this documentary is to bring more attention to this because, I mean, now there's a $10 million reward if you can give information that leads to the recovery of these works. I think especially that Rembrandt. They're so obsessed with that Rembrandt. Um, and, and so, I, I mean, I don't know. I haven't read any interviews with uh, the filmmakers or anything, but especially towards the end, because they don't have 
a satisfying finale to end this with and then we caught the bad guys hooray you just kind of get this plea to hey do you know anything about these because if you ever (laughs) see them please tell us which i think is honestly really smart because i mean i didn't know what any of these looked like and now i do so if i see them i'll know (laughs) (laughs) that's true yeah i mean the other thing that is still an unanswered question is the pieces that they took the 13 pieces they took there is really no rhyme or reason like on why those pieces specifically like there's no real pattern so it wasn't like they took the most expensive works it wasn't like they took the most famous works or the biggest works or the smallest or the most easily transportable there were just some random things like taking a random chinese vase or taking like a one of the eagles that's like on top of a flag that nobody actually kind of really cared about. So it, it does seem oddly specific. So either these people were just like, we don't know anything and we're just going to randomly grab a bunch of things because mm, like, or there was some really specific reason, but but we just, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wonder, will we ever know? Yeah, this is one of those mysteries where it, it may just never be, you know, at, at this point, it's been so long. Yeah, like so many of these people are dead and um, we don't even know if the art pieces are still around, unfortunately. But, but you know, hey, like what we were saying the other day or not the other day, what we were saying a number of episodes ago when we were uh, talking about the tu- the tutu painting and how it turned up something like decades later this this might as well so anything's possible one of the reporters said at some point you get the generations where someone realizes like grandpa's painting is actually that this such and such thing and that's a real possibility i wanted to ask before we get kind of into the end bit here did you have any favorite people or stories that stuck out to you from this that we haven't covered already yeah i think the uh, some of the other things that i just found kind of interesting and also kind of hilarious was th- that they did they did do some of the profile on uh, profiles on the uh, on the guards like um what was his name richard abath oh richard abath oh richard abath yeah like so so yeah they did do some of the profiles on them and um yeah it seemed like again they were uh, you know, just they weren't very experienced <laughs> security guards, let's just say. Um, and you know, the yeah, like Richard Abbott was kind of he was like a DJ or something, or and or he was in a band and kind of was just smoking pot all the time and probably was high on the job as far as we know. And now and and so again, like I read that. Um, I don't think this was in the documentary, but apparently, so again, because of the low funding for security, they only paid just slightly above minimum wage. So the people they hired were, you know, probably just like students or you know people who were just looking for like a part-time job and not really all that serious so it, it kind of makes sense but I do I do like when the interview with Richard Abbott like he was he did say I am the only person who's not trying to figure out what happened because I'm just happy to be alive and it like it's it, I, I just found that like refreshing because it's like everyone in the documentary was like oh my god this is so interesting like where are these paintings and who did it and the, you know the Richard Abbott is just like yeah I don't really care I'm just I, I quit after that and I left 
Yeah, they talk about Richard Abbott for a while because he was a person of interest in the case because they were like, why did he buzz them in? Was he in on it? Blah, blah, blah. And the conclusion seemed to be like, probably not. Like he was just incompetent. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) He was possibly high. Like he just like wasn't that great of a security guard possibly. Um, And so he was never charged with anything or arrested. But they never talk at all about the fact that it was probably really traumatic for him and for the other man who was there. They were tied up and left in a basement all night. That's so scary. And now they were physically unharmed, but still, like, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with this either. And then people think that you're in on it and they're hounding you. Oh my God, that poor man. Yeah, and actually, I felt so bad too for the the other guard who apparently it was his first time ever working a oh night God, shift yeah. because somebody else called in sick and he was covering for them and was probably like, "Oh yeah, sure, I'll do a night shift. That sounds interesting." <gasps> Never again. He brought a trombone <laughs> to practice with in the night, yeah. and then he got kidnapped. Oh. <laughs> Poor Randy. Yeah, that that's that sucks. So, but I do feel bad for them. But I, you know, the the good thing is. At least they weren't some of the people that were found in the back of a truck. Yeah, I'm glad that they were totally physically unharmed. The last person that I wanted to talk about from this documentary is my favorite person who was in it, besides Miles Connor, who's iconic. (laughs) um, The sister-in-law of one of the people that they suspected being a thief. Oh, yeah. Uh, So... There's a man, um, George Reisfelder, and they thought that he might have been one of the thieves or like part of the gang that was around this theft. And they interviewed, they got, they got an on-camera interview with his sister-in-law, Donna, who is my hero. She was so <laughs> funny. And she tells the story that he called her and asked her to help him hang up a frame, like a framed piece of art. And she was like, George... This frame is feminine, it's frou-frou and girly, and it sucks. And also the picture that's in it is ugly. What the hell is this? (laughs) And then later, when she's questioned by the police or the FBI or whatever, because they think he's connected to this, and they're showing her the picture of all the paintings, and she gets to the stolen Manet, (laughs) and she's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, that's the painting I saw him hanging up on his wall and then and then they were she was like he couldn't have done this heist after he's so slow moving like physically slow <laughs> moving and they were like they were in there for 81 minutes and she was like oh it could have been him then that was probably george <laughs> oh, no. i do love how she yeah she, they were she when she realized it was the manet painting and they were like oh so yeah it was the shade tortoni and she's like yeah i call it the tortellini <laughs> oh my god she was so funny and, and sadly george uh also died very young he died of an overdose in 91 like right as this investigation was very much still happening but oh my god i love her <laughs> it, it does seem like they were in a lot of instances onto something or that when they were doing the investigation, because most likely these people had something to do with it. You know, either they were there or they had the paintings at one point, but you know, unfortunately they're dead. (laughs) So, and we don't know what else happened. Yeah. It's really hard to question people when they all keep dying. Yeah. Well, much like this documentary series, we 
don't have a conclusion to this because we don't know where the paychecks are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, I, I, I do. I will say that the, the the tour of the stolen art is a really interesting tour. Like, or just uh, I don't know if they're doing tours still at at the Gardner Museum these days. But um, just going there to see the empty frames, it is a it is just a really interesting experience. I don't really think other places that have had work stolen do that like put it really front and center on display and the reason they they do they had to do this really was because is one of isabella gardner's uh in her will one of the stipulations is nothing can be changed it, whether it's architecture or the arrangement or how the art's positioned so really they're just like okay well if nothing can be changed then these they're, they're, these are just going to be empty frames. And but what happened is like, yeah, it kind of it, it it's a constant reminder of of what happened. And um, yeah, it, it really is just a very beautiful museum to to tour. So you know, I think uh, people should check it out. Yeah. So visit the museum. Um, if you have any relatives who might be connected to the mafia in the Northeast, maybe <laughs> check out their houses, see if there's any paintings in the basement. Just an idea, just a fun family activity. <laughs> but thanks so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Pictorial. Uh, you can find our show notes at relay.fm slash pictorial. You can find the documentary that we talked about on Netflix. Um, and you can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at pictorialpod. If you'd like, you could follow me on Instagram at AspiringRobotFM. And you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at ArticulationsV. And I'm also on YouTube as Articulations. And speaking of YouTube, we also have a YouTube channel, Pictorial Podcasts, where we upload video versions of our audio episodes, usually a few weeks after the audio versions. So for this one, you can look at some stolen art as we talk about them. Thanks for listening, art enthusiasts.